0: This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly.
1: Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 45. This is your podcast about all things related to digital transformation the people, process, technology, and and strategy sides of transformation. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, thanks for being back on the show, as always.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So today we've got a great episode. Uh, We're actually starting a series here as we wrap up 2021, or we come up on the home stretch of 2021. And today's episode is the first in a series of three best of episodes we're going to do, kind of looking back at some of the best highlights from the Transformation Ground Control podcast, some of the best discussions, some of the most meaningful and in-depth conversations we had. And we're going to cover today, we're going to focus on the people aspects sort of the best of the interviews related to the people side of digital transformation. And in future episodes, in the next two episodes, we'll cover process and technology as well. Uh, so today we're really going to dive, dive deep into the human aspect of transformation. And we've sort of curated three of the best interviews that we think best illustrate and best round out the whole concept of the people angle of change. Uh, First on the show, we're going to have Teresa Richardson, who was on a while back on this podcast, and she uh, talks a little bit about just sort of what is change management, that introduction to change management, giving us that 20,000 foot view overview of organizational change management. So we had a great conversation several weeks ago, several episodes ago related to that. We're gonna play you that clip and uh, highlight some of the the topics there. And then we're gonna have Emma Roloff uh, from uh, a previous episode as well. We're gonna talk about the human aspect of new technologies and emerging technologies. So really looking at the advancement of some of these emerging technologies and digital transformation and how we can better enable the human aspect of it in the context of sort of massive technological change. So uh, that'll be the second segment we have today. And then the third segment, we'll have Jed Hafer, uh, who is on the show talking about emotional intelligence and general organizational leadership and some of the organizational psychology of organizational change management. And a really interesting interview we had with him, so we're going to play you a clip from that as well. So today is going to be very much focused on change management, the human components of change, and before we get into our uh, our three guests, though... Um, Tyler, you had some hot topics related to organizational change management that you wanted to cover as well. So what have you got for us?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a new Harvard business study that talked about organizational change and how it's critical, specifically in healthcare, as that's a really relevant industry right now as we have seen in the last 20 months. And what it kind of talks about is we have all of these great health healthcare professionals on the front lines that are obviously extremely intelligent in kind of the academic sphere of their, their overall careers and profession. But when it comes to the human aspect of their role or their ability to be empathetic and things like that, a lot of times it's it's left out of their overall training. So this study specifically said that in today's uncertain climate leaders at all levels of the organization involved in managing a change um, whether it's a senior executive or the frontline worker really sets the organizational tone Um, and that middle management tier a lot of times is the one that actually has to activate that change so i wanted to kind of get your reaction to that we've all kind of been involved with a doctor who's obviously extremely intelligent but may not be able to have that communication tier so i wanted to see kind of how you felt like that related to change management within an organization
1: yeah it's an interesting topic an interesting angle because i think that's something we can't all relate to the doctor or the you know the really smart person that knows a lot but doesn't have that high emotional intelligence or eq whatever you want to call it um, and i think that is a, a challenge that a lot of organizations have especially You know, when when you look at some of the industries we work in, some of the, um, call it older, more established industries like manufacturing or oil and gas, energy, some of those industries especially, you'll tend to see um, sort of this mentality that change isn't going to be that difficult because we have sort of a command and control style of management or our people are really tired of the old system, so it's going to be easy for them to change. And it's sort of an assumption that people are going to change just because we tell them to or because they don't like the current situation. So they're gonna be super willing and supportive of change. And you know, as we know, you dig deep below the surface and you find that that's not typically true. Typically it is difficult for people to change and typically they're not gonna change just because you tell them to, um, or at the very least you're gonna have underlying issues or resistance that uh, leadership may not see. So I think it's a good analogy or, or a good uh, angle to look at it because I think that is a challenge for a lot of leaders and a lot of industries in particular.
2: Absolutely. And I'm curious, when it comes to being a leader and preparing your organization, whether it's your employees or your customers or your patients to go through a change, how how do you do that um, from that sort of perspective? What's kind of some of the top line steps you can take?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's some something that some of the guests I know mm-hmm. will, will get to today in, in a bit more detail. But you know, in general, you know some of the the biggest things you can do as a leader. First of all, are to define what the change means to the organization and why the organization is going through it. And you you really have to articulate it in a way that goes beyond sort of your basic "Hey, we're going to upgrade our technology because we have to." Um, people don't really care. You know, at the end of the day, that you have to that we have to change our technology. That's not a good enough reason. It uh, doesn't give you enough of a, a direction or parameters of, of what the change is going to entail for the organization. So you have to be more specific in articulating what the vision is for the transformation. And you know, one thing I'll tell you not to do. I think the one thing that a lot of organizations do that they shouldn't be doing is they focus so much on sort of selling the technology. Like if you're implementing SAP or Microsoft or whatever it is, I'm um, really selling that. Hey, we're going you know to an S four HANA upgrade with SAP, and here's why this technology is so great. And it, it, you sort of miss the Purpose of the transformation. The transformation is not to implement the technology. The the transformation is to change your business, improve the business, you know, bring new capabilities into the business, stuff that, yes, is related to technology, but you ultimately have to connect the dots back to the strategy and the overall direction and the vision objectives of the organization. So that's the first thing is articulate clearly what that purpose and what the vision and strategy is for the transformation. And then the other part is you know, going one layer deeper and getting that alignment as an executive team, as a mid-level management team, and determining and defining what the changes are going to entail. Uh, Because it's one thing to say we're going to improve A, B, and C within our organization, but it's another thing to define how we're going to change A, B, and C and what exactly that looks like, what our future state operating model is is going to be, what our organizational structure is going to be, what some of those business processes and process flows are going to be. That's the sort of articulation that you need at that more granular level. And that's another step that a lot of organizations miss because they're so focused on just building technology and rolling it out and testing it and training people on it. But we have to be doing a lot more than that on the human side. So I'd say if you're gonna start somewhere, start with clearly defining what the overall vision and purpose of the, of the transformation is. And then the second step would be sort of building on that and further defining what the future state is going to be and creating that vision uh, for, the, for the team and for the organization
2: that's all great insight and it's a perfect transition into kind of our, our next sort of hot topic that I found when it came to overall ROI and change. So just to share some statistics with you, uh, the digital transformation industry is projected to top 6.8 trillion with a T, I've never said trillion wow. before on this show um, by right. 2023. And they the this study said they often lack clear benefits or ROI, and the biggest issue that they found within this insights research is that it's very common for organizations just to implement new technology and completely ignore the actual adoption of it, and what I really liked that they did is they compared it to you can convince your grandfather to buy a cell phone, right, but right. It's, it stayed in the box the entire time so without understanding what that transformation looks like for your frontline users or your overall business community it can be very difficult and I, I wondered you know what your reaction to kind of that adoption phase of the project would that kind of be the third stage of the transformation or would that be kind of in the ongoing maintenance of it
1: well i think it's both and i would i would sort of maybe to spin the analogy with the grandpa and the cell phone a little bit differently and say it's it's almost like with the grandpa that maybe he takes it out of the box and he uses it but he uses it just to make voice calls so he's got the mm-hmm. smartphone that can do all this stuff but all he does is make calls with it which which is fine but he's not texting he's not using uh you know some of the mm-hmm. other capabilities as far as email and uh you know, some of the digital stuff with app different apps and stuff like that so that that would be a good example of how a lot of transformations go. Yeah, you're using the technology, but you're using the real basic stuff that you were already doing as an organization. You're not really furthering the organization. You're just automating or putting in new technology to automate what you were already doing in the first place. So it's not a terrible thing, but you're leaving a lot of value on the table uh, in that regard. So that's another part of that articulation of what the vision is of, of the future state. You know, What is our future state operating model and organizational structure? All the stuff I talked about a moment ago that stuff you, you want to translate into what is that business value? How does that translate into meaningful benefits and measurable benefits that we can hold ourselves accountable to? And then to your other part of your question about, is that in the third stage or is that the ongoing uh, component or ongoing aspect of a transformation? I'd say it's both because you certainly want, you're not going to reach the third stage of success as, as we you know use our analogy for how we help our clients. You're not going to reach that third stage of success without having a clear vision of what those business benefits are, what the metrics are. They're going to drive your business to to achieve those benefits, but you're also not going to achieve them on day one of go live. You're going to go live and you're going to fall short in some areas in terms of what the potential business value is. So there's sort of an ongoing um, optimization, benefits realization phase that should be happening after go live. But the problem is most organizations are so spread thin and they're moving so quickly and aggressively in their timelines that they move from one go live for one location to the next go live to another location without really stabilizing and optimizing what they could be getting out of the system and learning from that, and then taking those lessons to take it to other uh, uh, rollouts or other aspects of the rollout, whether it's new locations or new modules or just additional users that you're bringing onto the system in future phases. And that gets back into the whole issue of which I won't go down this rabbit hole too far, but companies that have too aggressive of a timeline, they just don't have time to optimize benefits. And so they end up cramming all the stuff into too little time. So when you're thinking about your plan, you wanna make sure you you leave room, some breathing room for that benefits realization and optimization so that you can not only maximize value at each go live or each phase of your project, but you can take those lessons and apply them to make the future phases better.
2: And I assume part of that approach is just that consistency in measuring. What that looks like on the organizational change side, I know we talk a lot about how organizational change is not a soft science, and Teresa will kind of go into that a little bit more. It is something that does affect your overall ROI of a project. Um, so I would I would guess that that constant measurement throughout that journey is really crucial.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, and you know, the first step, like I said, is just to define what the mm-hmm. measures or the targets are, which. You know, it's, it's interesting how many organizations and teams you ask the question of what, what kind of business value do you expect to get out of this? And they can't give you a quantifiable measurable metric. They might say something really vague, like we want to bring our company into the 21st century. Okay. What what does that mean? What does that mean to your industry? What does that mean to your business? And how are you going to measure that? What do you expect the organization to look like on the other side of this? And so the first step is just to simply as simple as it sounds, just simply define what those measures are. And And most organizations don't even get that far. And then once you define what the measures are then obviously you have to define you know what our reporting strategies are who's going to be accountable for measuring and and optimizing those numbers and how are we going to report back on it just to make sure we're getting
2: the most out of it sure sure absolutely and all great insights that each one of our um speakers will touch on today most certainly and the last um kind of hot topic i wanted to share was um from an expert excerpt, excuse me, from a book that's called The Wind From Within, and it talks about effective cultures anchor those strategic changes. Um, so kind of dipping into the culture piece of it, is it easier to change a strategy or is it easier to change a culture within an organization?
1: Uh, definitely strategy. I mean, it's easier to pivot on your strategy and and redefine that or go, go a different direction. Uh, you can change culture, it just takes longer and it's harder to do. And most most organizations fail miserably in their attempts to, to change their culture. Cause it's just, it's such a, it's it's becomes, it's, it's almost like changing your DNA or your you mm-hmm.
3: know, st-
1: structure as a person. I mean, it's just hard to change uh, yourself individually let alone hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of employees or however many you have. Um, so yeah, definitely uh, strategy is easier to change than, than culture for sure.
2: Absolutely, good job. You got it right in my lightning. Oh, map. that's it. Oh, nice. <laughs> you didn't even know yeah, I was wonderful. quizzing you. That's what a Jedi mind trick that was. But this right. book is really interesting because it, it talks about, I don't know if you've read it um, before, mm-hmm. but it talks about not. the um, kind of the turnaround of Microsoft's culture um, and kind of the huge wealth that Windows had produced for Microsoft and what that made in having it to play catch up with with more of an e-commerce based structure, like Amazon type of thing um, and what that looked like. So definitely a huge fast paced change within business communities that are centered around technology. Um, But I think it's a, a great segue, that kind of baseline question into Teresa's clip from earlier this year, just defining change management.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one one last thing I'll add to that as you were talking, it just struck me that, you know, your strategy can impact your culture and vice versa, but Mm -hmm. you know, you you talk about Microsoft or if you think about the average organization that's moving to cloud technologies or their strategy is to deploy uh, new business models and whatnot, that can absolutely influence your culture, but you also want to make sure you're bending your culture to fit that strategy as well. So I think that's probably the more important question to think about is how do we make sure our strategy and our culture are aligned and that we're not creating a disconnect or dissonance between what we think we're trying to do strategically versus what the culture of the organization is.
2: Absolutely. And and that can be seen as a huge opportunity to create a culture of innovation or um, a culture that accepts change. It doesn't fear it is more of yeah. a, a, a way to put that. So um, definitely a A lot of learnings from our speakers today that go into kind of the why behind it. And then lastly, we'll hear from Jeff that talks about the emotional intelligence piece of it that's so important.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a good transition then, and we'll we'll sort of get that baseline overview of organizational change management. Um, We're going to come back from a break, and we'll play you uh, an interview from Teresa Richardson, an interview I had with her several episodes ago talking about just sort of your basic overview of change management. What is it? How do you get started on the process? Uh, Why is it so important? How does it impact the transformation? All that good stuff. Um, So really good introductory discussion we'll have right after we take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
4: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
1: So, uh, that'll be said. Uh, Teresa, let's start um, with maybe a quick introduction. Maybe tell us a little bit about you and, and, you know, how did you grow up in the world of change management and transformation.
3: Sure. So uh, I'm originally from Michigan, and my uh, career started out as organic growth, right? So being from Michigan, you know, you have a limited amount of uh, industries you can choose from. And, And primarily it was at the time, healthcare, and or manufacturing. So I started off in manufacturing um, where I got my taste uh, of process improvement, uh, Lean Six Sigma Black Belt work, Red X strategies work. Um, and through my journey, I understood that you can't just look at a process or a technology and expect it to work with people involved. Um, so I have my Lean Sigma Six Sigma Black Belt. I also have uh, a size certification in change management. I'm an executive leadership coach. And in terms of industry experience, as I stated, healthcare, manufacturing, IT, logistics, distribution, and wealth management. So kind of had the whole spectrum and the, I've been growing along the way.
1: Very good. Constantly learning and uh, applying those Pretty broad skill sets to a number of different situations. I want to come back to that too, by the way, because I'm always fascinated by anyone who's not just a change management practitioner, but also has other um, other disciplines that they focus on. I think that's a fascinating combination. So I want to come back and ask you sure. a question about that here sure, sure, sure. in a second. But before before we dive into that, though, maybe just for. Just for the average person that might be listening that doesn't really know what change management is they've heard the term maybe they know it's important but what in the world does change management mean? how would you how would you sort of simplify it dumb it down however you want to describe it just for the person that doesn't know much about change management?
3: Well, what I will say is I will say what it is not It is not fuzzy bunnies and rainbows and kittens okay that is that is not it um, To me, it's a systematic, Uh, approach that deals with technology processes as well as people. So we have tools and techniques that really address the the process and technology, but also the people side of change. It's very important to understand that whatever initiative you're doing, people will be involved, and you need to understand how these impacts uh, affect them, what are their stressors, uh, be able to identify resistance uh, points so you can create plans and actionable items to address those and and really help people along the way to not only embrace it and accept it, but own it, in a nutshell.
1: (laughs) I I love how you stated what it's not, because I think that's, even though that's not what I asked, I I think it's perfect description because that, I, I agree that a lot of, especially at the executive level, you find that people think that, oh, it's just a kumbaya, session or a a way to make people feel good. Maybe it has that unintended uh, benefit, but the real benefit is to really transform the business, deliver value, you know, more tangible results.
3: Yeah. And, And also when, when people who hear change management, um, traditionally they think change management, uh, steering committees things like that where you get a group of people together that make decisions on a process or technology change. It's not really addressing the people side of change. Um, I had an interesting conversation today with uh, a potential sponsor and through our conversation uh, in dialogue, it was a, I was painfully aware what he thought change management was in his traditional role versus what we were trying to accomplish. Um, so, again, having the skill set of identifying those nonverbal cues, change inflect- and inflection, even the way they're answering questions kind of led me down the path to get an understanding of where he was really at in terms of understanding his role as sponsor.
1: Hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, so we've talked a little bit about at a high level what change management is, what it's not. Um, why, is it, why is it so important? It sounds like a no-brainer question, but, but I think it's a really important question.
3: Yep. So this is another favorite question of mine. So whenever I'm talking to a client or a team, um, I ask them, you know, to tell me about your process. Is your process 99.9% automated? And nine times out of 10, they tell me no. Well, if there is a people factor in your process or technology change, you cannot ignore that. So it's very, very important to get the understanding that we are impacting the the way people do their jobs, their their daily lives between nine to five or whatever. So you have to be able to understand where they're at in their understanding, how to communicate the changes, how to identify potential resistors and be able to mitigate that and, and, and create a change team that can address those when you're not around as a change management
1: professional. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And, and uh, one thing that, that I found in uh, that sort of validates what you're saying, the importance of change management is that in, in time we're hired to go do a project recovery and sort of clean up a failed project, or when we're hired as an expert witness to provide an opinion on why a project failed, it almost always comes back to change management. There's some heavy change management failure that led the problem. It's usually not because the technology didn't work or even that the processes didn't work it's because the people side of the equation wasn't addressed well.
3: And and honestly, I am a firm believer that people don't come to work to want to do a bad job. They come to work to be productive, to be part of something, to be part of a solution. And if you miss that opportunity to bring your team into the fold to have those conversations, uh it can impact the success of what you're doing so you know when you have people who actually touch the process and they're the closest they have the most valuable information it's really easy to you know configure something or draw something but until you're understanding how that is impacting the people who are actually using it you're going to miss a big opportunity so you should probably get into the change management mindset early on to create that wealth of knowledge you can use to mitigate any, any you know, resistors or issues you have moving forward. It's better to do it up front than to do midpoint or after, because then you've created another issue, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, just taking that one step further, It's I think it's important to think of change management as something that's on your critical path, you know, yes. the, the ultimate time and cost of your transformation is going to be largely determined by how well you address change management and while it may seem like a net investment or a a net cost, it really isn't. I mean, it's actually going to save you time and money by handling change management well. Um, Absolutely. So that's an important point. Okay, Teresa, thanks for that. We're going to come back. We have a lot more to talk about. We're going to take a quick break and we'll ask you some more questions. As soon as we come back from a quick break, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
5: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
1: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 45. Thanks for joining us today. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, all the usual audio podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, Amazon, Pandora, iHeartRadio, et cetera. And you can also uh, find us on social media as well. So be sure to follow us on whatever social media platforms you're a part of. Uh, in particular, we post quite frequently on YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, and uh, Twitter. So be sure to check us out there. So we just had this conversation with Teresa Richardson. And, and just for reference, that was episode number 29. We have the full interview that you can listen to. If you, if you like that discussion, you want to hear more with Teresa, uh, go back to episode number 29 of this podcast, and you'll find that full uh, episode where that clip is from. But in that discussion, uh, Kyler, what were some of the the key takeaways or, or findings that you had from that discussion?
2: Yeah, definitely. I love this clip of it specifically because it talks about what change management is not. Um, you know, yeah. and when she actually gives us a big definition, she talks about change management is not a nice to have. And I wonder why so many companies think that it is a nice to have. Like we talk a lot about. Uh, critical pieces of change management, we talk about why it's so important with our insight studies and our overall research. Well, why do so many companies kind of leave it off when it, when it, it's almost like a nice to have piece of their strategy?
1: Well, I think it's for a lot of the reasons that we, we've talked about before, which is early in this episode, we were talking about measure business value, measurable business value and uh, um, metrics and things like that. And a lot of times organizations don't equate change management to measurable business value. They think it's sort of a touchy-feely, we're going to make people feel good, but there's no actual measurable value coming out of it. So I think that's the key is is to recognize at a leadership level and then communicate to the rest of the organization why it's so important to go through the, the change aspect of it, or more importantly, just execute on the change management part of it, even if you don't necessarily articulate to everyone why change management is important. So just being able to chat through that and and, uh, and and recognize the connection between the two, I think, is very important. And so, as change management practitioners, you know, if you're a if you're a change management team member or a part of a project team, and you're not at the executive level, um, you know, the question then becomes, well, what can you do if your your executives don't recognize the importance right. of change and they don't want to invest in change management? Then what do you do? Well, that's where you do have to do sort of a sales job on the executives to make sure they recognize you know, how change management will support it. But more importantly, if you just sort of make change management into everything you do as a team, I think that is oftentimes the most effective way to handle change. It's almost like a sort of a Trojan horse approach to change management. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily because you want to uh, surprise people or do something their backs necessarily, but it's because it should just be a core uh, aspect of the of the overall project rather than a, necessarily a separate work stream or a siloed work stream outside the core part of the project. So if you can just make, change management and change, effective change initiatives sort of baked into the overall governance and process that you use to go through the transformation, that's the, the most effective thing you could do.
2: And would you say that it's it's kind of an, an industry assumption or it has been in the past that change management isn't as important as the actual technology or the software selection piece? Would you say that maybe uh, a lot of our, our bigger um, big box types of system integrators or vendors would, would often apply that. And that might be a reason for it not being a priority within digital strategies.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have a whole industry that's sort of wired to focus on technology. I mean, you have software vendors and system integrators, implementers, you know, you, you talked earlier in the show about $6.8 trillion being spent on digital transformations by 2023. I'd be curious to know how much of that six point eight trillion dollars is focused just on technology and technology related mm-hmm. stuff versus, you know, process and, and people uh, aspects of change or of transformation. So I think that you know you look at that those dollars, the six point eight trillion dollars being spent on transformations. I, I have to assume an overwhelming majority of that is is on technology or mm-hmm. something related to technology. And I think that's that therein lies the problem. You have all this money being made off technology. And technology-related services, and there's not uh, there's not strong incentive for the industry to change that and say let's hey let's not sell as much software let's focus more on change management because then they're taking away from their bread and butter which is to sell more software so I, I think that's you know just a industry dynamic that needs to be recognized and mm-hmm. countered and, and mitigated for sure.
2: If I am say a software vendor, just out of curiosity, it seems like an, a main metric would be that end user adoption that we kind of talked about in the beginning. And that Emma will talk about in just a second here. Um, is that something that is a priority for them, or it's kind of like I sold it to? you, Here you go. Good luck to you.
1: It's unfortunately more towards the latter, leads gotcha. more toward the latter. I'd say in the industry, uh, which is more we're trying to sell software. And you know, again, I always try to empathize and understand what oh, drives yeah. this. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think there's some grand master plan in the industry to deceive people into undermine change management efforts. I don't think that's it at all, but I think you you look at humans that are involved and the humans are salespeople that are trying to sell software. And Mm -hmm. yeah, they might know that in the long-term, if they're thinking longer term, change management is gonna be really important to help them have a referenceable client, having them have one more client. But at the end of the day, they're trying to sell software and they're trying to close a deal to make a big commission check. And they're gonna make a lot of commission at the time of sale, not at the time of successful implementation. So. Mm Um, unfortunately, you have a lot of short-term focus with sales reps. They're selling software. And if you're short-term focused, you're not really thinking about change management. You're thinking about how can I, how can I sell you as much software and how can I get the software turned on up and running as quickly as possible? Cause I, you know, company is going to make more money in the short term that way. And I'm going to make more money as a individual. So that's sort of how the industry is built. Mm-hmm. And so again, it, that is, is a, a negative thing. I, in my opinion, but, doesn't mean you have to just live with that, accept that you can do things yourself to counter that and recognize that that's what's happening and that's how the industry is, but know that what's best for your organization may not be best for the digital transformation industry necessarily, but it's probably best for you as an individual organization. And that's what you have to to focus on is what do we need to do to be successful um, in addition to what software these people are, are selling to us.
2: Yeah, well, let's garner some of those controllables or those strategies and tactics from Emma as she takes us through what it looks like to have some change management initiatives within new technology in an organization.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and she does. I like the discussion with Emma um, because we do get into some emerging technologies and the way new types of technologies can enable a digital transformation, but we talk about it in the context of, well, how do you how can you accept or, or enable something like artificial intelligence or something that's going to highly automate a job and potentially eliminate job functions? How in that context, can you leverage those emerging cool technologies, but still address the human side in, in that context? And so it's a, I really enjoyed this interview with, with Emma. Too. So we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll, we'll play that interview or at least a clip from that interview from Emma uh, when we come back. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on digital transformation crowd control.
6: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
1: When you automate someone's job, how do you manage that change? because that's a pretty significant change to come in and say, we're going to have a robot or RPA automate what you might be spending, you know, 50, 60% of your time doing what, what have you seen work or what have you seen some of the challenges be from a, from a change management or human perspective of that?
7: So I think the biggest, and I, I I don't want to say this is a misconception because it is a change and you do have to manage that change. Um, But I think what typically happens and what I've seen with our customers is more often than not, they are welcoming of that portion of their job being taken because it's not that they don't have enough other things to be doing. It's Mm -hmm. that the other things don't get the attention that they should be, or they don't have the capacity to ever take a deep breath. And what I mean by that is You know, there's been organizations that we go in to help specifically in this accounts payable scenario that you mentioned. That we're going in with whether it's RPA or some of the other tools that we can get into that we've got that kind of help eliminate some of this manual work. And we go in and we help them automate portions of that process to eliminate the manual keying that they need to do. And it opens up time for them to suddenly be paying their bills on time as an organization, because in the past they've had a three month backlog of processing that they're trying to get through and they can't hire and train people quick enough, or they don't have the budget to have those people there. And so rather most of the time when we come in, unless it's a very, very, very large uh, organization that has a lot of people only ever touching these repetitive tasks. Do we get into the place where we're displacing people's positions? We're really just refocusing their time to focus on what are the really impactful parts of their job that drive the business forward. And usually once you kind of put it in that frame of mind, they're welcoming of that change because they don't want to be doing that part of their job anyhow. And so it's I mean, and again, I don't I don't do do not want to mislead that there isn't you know, some positions that might be um, eliminated because of intelligent automation and some of the the tools that we're gonna talk about today. But more often than not, the organizations are raring and ready to go to take that person and train them to do something different if their whole position was something that's being eliminated or they're shifting their focus onto that higher value task. Um, But it does, you have to have the conversation honestly on the front end for them to get to the point where they understand that. And they're not fearful of the change or fighting the change, because if they think that their job is going to go away, they're not going to help you do it. But if they understand, we're not here to eliminate your job, we're here to make it better. And let's talk about what your your ideal better job looks like. And you be a part of this. They will come up with new ideas to manage the process. They'll help bring forward other, you know, bottlenecks within the process that you should be focusing on as well. And it'll be just a, so much more collaborative throughout the entire process.
1: Yeah. So again, their engagement and buy-in early on, rather than defining the change and forcing the change on them is sort of the. the yeah.
7: The... And one of the things I mentioned that, you know, from our perspective, our methodology, we have typically a blended approach of bringing in a process consultant and or using data to help us hone in on where those opportunities are for improvement. But I think that that process consultant, and even you know whether it's someone internally or a third party, but somebody being there to help you have those conversations and ask questions in the right way and frame things in the right way and not forget about the people is such a critical part of that because, you know, as you get into conversations about change, it's a scary thing for people. And you know that, I mean, we're both human centric change people. Um, And when you can help them feel even incrementally more comfortable with it and help them feel ownership of it, one of the main things that we do is a discovery process where our team is working alongside with our customers team to design what that future state looks like. And when it's somebody from the outside asking questions of why do you do it that way or is there a different way to do this, it's less threatening to answer those questions, and you don't get the the same defensive nature that you do if you're managing it internally. And I don't know if you guys have had that experience, but sometimes that like friendly third party asking the question is a lot more well received than somebody, um, even if they have good intentions within your organization.
1: Yeah, it's you're not you're not caught up, people know that you're not caught up in the politics, you know, the internal dynamics and, you know, we're not, you're not jockeying as an outside party, you're not jockeying for any sort of, there's no ulterior motive to suggest something like that, but it could be perceived that way. If it's someone internally suggesting like, Hey, what is Emma, what do you do all day? Like, you know, do do you really need to be doing that? Maybe we should just automate your job. That's gonna be a lot more threatening if I say it to you as as a coworker versus a consultant comes in and maybe more tactfully asks the same, the same thing. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. And it, and it's interesting to hear you say that because, uh, we see a lot of organizations that, um, that don't even think about like, what, what are we going to do with that time that we save, you know, they, and that is something I think from an org design perspective, you have to do is say, okay, if I'm saving 30 or 40% of Emma's time and she doesn't have to process POs anymore, what is she going to do? What's her focus? How does it, how does she reprioritize her work, um, in the unfortunate event that her job is going to go away? What does that look like? What do you do with them? You know, and, and just having those answers is important. And, and companies don't think about that a lot of times because they're so focused on the technology. Like, how do we get this technology to work, and how do we define the process? But they don't always think about what does that impact to the organization.
7: Yeah, and I again, we've had some, and I would say more early early adoption of digital transformation when there used to be mail rooms with you know twenty people that were working in these large organizations. That was when I I think we saw a little bit more of like, okay, so what does our training path look like for these people or where, where else in the organization can we find a spot? And it was a little bit more purposeful. I would say it's been a while since there hasn't been enough work to keep people busy after we've automated portions of their job, Um, that like, it isn't like a, we just, you know, more they've brought in automation because they have a capacity issue as of, or they are growing so rapidly and they would rather not have to hire at the clip that's required to support that growth. And so then they're able to keep the same size team, but, you know, the, the company growth would have outpaced the size of their team had they not automated the process, right? I've got one customer who I think, if I'm going to say this correctly, they have a process that they put in place probably 10 years ago, um, and so they were early adopters of of technology and using it to manage processes. But over the course of that time frame, they have offset an additional headcount of 130 people. From how they were doing the process to what they're doing today, and incremental improvements to that process over time has allowed them. So it's not a hard ROI because they didn't hire those hundred and thirty people, but based off of their project projections, they were able to offset that much additional headcount.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like in more recent years, uh, companies are a lot more lean. You know, they don't have a lot of a lot of uh, fat to to trim. You know, in terms of uh, people. I know in the nineties when I started my career, there was a lot more, it felt like there was a lot more trimming that had still had to happen in terms of, of headcount and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so keeping in this initial theme of, you know, sort of alternate emerging technologies that not everyone is, is fully aware of yet. Um, you mentioned the word intelligent automation a second mm-hmm. ago. Tell us, tell us that what, what is intelligent automation how does it apply to an organization?
7: Yeah, so um, I I got and dropped that. And one of my big pet peeves is within our industry. I mean, at least an ERP has been an ERP for a while now. In our industry, it seems like every two years or so, we like to throw another term at everybody just to confuse them. And so, <laughs> yeah. intelligent automation, I don't want to say, is a completely separate idea from something like RPA. But really, when we take a look at intelligent automation is we're looking at tools like artificial intelligence, machine learning, um natural language processing, these more kind of advanced emerge they're they're still emerging because they're not kind of at the point where we think of AI as these, you know all-knowing. Uh, I think it was Will Smith in the, the iRobot movie. Yeah, it was. You know, like we think when we think of artificial intelligence, we think of like these all-knowing, like crazy smart robots that are going to take over the world. We're not to that point yet. So if we're if that's our goal, we're still emerging. Um, but it's bringing in those um, human-like thought patterns, and you know, AI in itself has so many different layers of then kind of subsequent technologies that build up to that larger category. But it's taking that kind of human-mimicked intelligence and bringing it into these automation tools that have been around for a while. So things like RPA being combined with those tools would then become intelligent and kind of that intelligent automation space. Um, Another kind of category within this, and I mentioned that this kind of falls into our capabilities as well. There's a technology called OCR, which I'm sure being in the ERP world, you're familiar with OCR, but that's optical character recognition. In the past, that, that technology has been around for for many, many years, far before I got into the industry. It was very template based, and it was very much being able to look at a specific portion of a document based on coordinates or based on a, you know, a, a a actual template that you built out in your tool to go to this spot and capture the characters that were at that spot within the document now we're able to do things like intelligent document processing where we have ai and and machine learning as a part of these solutions so rather than having to build out templates the tools can kind of look at the document the same way that a human would and use context on the document and use things like natural language processing to know that the pound sign or the hashtag or whatever we wanna call it also means number. And it knows that that means number and it knows that we may, through that natural language processing, we may abbreviate the word number down to NUM. And so when it sees, you know, and or, or I'm sorry, or um, invoice, it sees invoice and, you know, it has the, invoice number and it's an abbreviation or it's a pound sign or however that that vendor presents that information to you, the tool is intelligent enough now to understand that that's what that means, understand the context of that, and then know that it should look above that, it should look below that, it should look next to it, and then it's going to determine, oh, okay, that's the invoice number, I'm going to grab that value and I'm going to pull that out as an index value. And that typically has had to be either a manual process or we had to build out those manual templates to be able to get us to that point. Now these tools are so well-trained and so well-versed in what an invoice looks like. You can have all sorts of variability still with very high confidence coming through because of that intelligent aspect being added into the tools. And what we're starting to see much more is now that intelligence being built into all sorts of technology that allows us to kind of move into that intelligent automation space beyond just capture or beyond robotic process automation to things like business process management or BPM tools, now starting to have intelligence infused in them. So it can start to do some routing with a little bit more logic and a little bit more thought process and intelligence behind it, instead of all just yes or no, right or wrong, you know, kind of logic that we've used in the past. And starting to minimize the amount of human intervention that you need in these processes when things follow your your standard process.
1: Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and I can see a lot of uses for that. I mean, there's so many. You think about the average organization, a, a big, huge company that does lots of different things, lots of different documents floating around with different nomenclature, and even just that one example of invoice number. You know, think of all the alternate uh, scenarios where that would help. You know, even outside of invoice processing as well
7: well and some of those again with with machine learning and that type of thing i call you know i talk about that that tool specifically a little bit of an art and a little bit of a science right now because when it's got machine learning in it, or any of these tools that do, they get more effective over time too. So as you get more documents running through the process and the engine has more time to learn from these document samples, you will have to intervene and kind of verify through the process less and less as it goes. And so it will know, oh, okay, even though I see this address block and I know this address block is this vendor, and I know this vendor typically puts this information there and oh, okay, we're processed, we know we can with confidence that we've got it. And it can do things too, like, you know, on the invoice side, I'm going to calculate all the line items and add in the tax and make sure that this, you know, that the number I've captured here matches and, and is verified based on the math that I've done. And so it can do some of that stuff that we had to rely on people to do even three years ago, you know, so there's, um, there's a lot of advancements being done in all of these kind of automation or process management tools to get to that point where we have less and less intervention needed each step of the way.
1: Gotcha. Okay. And so uh, we have a, an audience question I wanted to get to um, from Karen, who's, who's watching on Crowdcast. And again, if you're watching on LinkedIn or YouTube or Twitter and you have questions, feel free to just put them in the chat box uh, on that platform. I'm watching all of them for any questions that come through. But the good news is Karen is not uh, thinking too much differently than you and I as it relates to the human heart. So I'm glad it's not just me that couldn't resist asking the change. <laughs> but, but Karen asked, what role changes have you seen when an organization moves to bots? For example, how does this impact customer support? So what are so- some things-
7: yeah and i actually that's karen that that idea of customer support one of the biggest areas that we see rpa being used is in customer support and some of those front-facing roles within an organization even beyond um you know when let me actually let me take a half step back so number one when we bring in this type of automation typically what happens and you know we talked about shifting focus and shifting mindset um, having the capacity to be empathetic, <laughs> or having the capacity to respond quickly and um, actually manage customer service is something that is really, you know, Uh, When you are months and months behind processing your invoices and you've got vendors giving you late fees and you have your boss telling you, you need to cut down on your costs and all of these things. And suddenly when your coworker sends you an email to ask you who, like in this scenario, is your customer, you know, your, your, your customer emails you to say, have you gotten this invoice? I had a vendor reach out to me. You're not that concentrated on being super polite in your response to that you're not that concentrated on getting them a response to answer that question quickly because you have so much work. Once you have the that, I kind of called it the ability to breathe <laughs> and you have the bandwidth in your position to offer that customer support in kind of that setting that we've been talking about, I think it ultimately improves your customer experience, whether those are internal or external customers. Now taking that half step forward to kind of changing directions of what I was just talking about, There are so many use cases of RPA specifically within call centers or front facing customer service scenarios where, um, think about when you call into a customer service line and a lot of times they're asking you like, oh, okay, what was your order number? What's your customer number? Or they're looking for some sort of identifying information for meal. They're usually asking you to hang tight for a minute while they go and they look for your information one really good way to use RPA is to have that bot do all of the lookups of all of the information that that customer support rep needs to be able to help solve your problem when you're calling. And so um, that is a super, super common kind of attended scenario that I, I mentioned earlier. Where you're using that bot to bring back information to help you solve a problem. And um, in scenarios where we've got big call centers or customer service um, situations, trying to solve the problem on the first call and trying to solve that problem quickly is often a really big KPI for those teams because that's their goal. They wanna help you, they wanna help you on the first call. They don't wanna have to transfer you to somebody else because they can't solve your problem. And so a big part of that is getting all of the right information in front of them at the time so that they can see what document you got in the mail and actually be able to tell you what it means. They can see exactly where your order is within the, their, their process or help answer any questions that you've got. And even to the point where, you know, as we start getting into some of the intelligent automation space and also just RPA and kind of looking at automation in this, this arena, it can do things like present customer service reps with reminders to make sure at certain stages of the, co- the conversation that they're saying things to you that they are required to say to you and making sure that they stay compliant and making sure that they don't have 500 things running in the background of their thought pattern while they're trying to listen to you. So that they can be empathetic. They can truly listen to you because they're not fearful that they're going to forget to do something that they're required by law to tell you. And so being able to just free up that mental space (laughs) to even have a smile in their voice when they answer the phone helps improve customer service and your as the customer, your experience and like overall, um, opinion of that interaction.
1: Yeah. It's, it's almost like, um, you're using technology to allow people to do, do less and think more, you know, it's, it's like you're, you're and when I, that's an oversimplification, you're still doing stuff, but you're not doing super manual processes, you're doing higher value processes. You're. You're, it's an opportunity to redesign the purpose of a customer service rep and say, you know, your job is not to go look up stuff. Your job is to be the face of the organization to the customer and to, you know, do all the the breathing that you need to do to be successful uh, in that role.
7: And it's changing conversations about what professional development for some of these types of roles looks like and what, um, what like to your point, just innately, what is the role of that that job. And um, if you're handling exceptions and you're handling complex, that's a different skill set than handling mundane and repetitive. And as we get to the point where chat bots are coming in and when I want to understand something and I can type back and forth with someone while I'm at work doing something else and I don't have to call a customer service rep, I'm not going to make that phone call unless I'm really angry and I need help. Or I'm really upset about what's happened and I'm feeling emotional about it. So you need the capacity when you're always taking um, those exceptions. There we go. When you're always taking those exceptions and always managing these more emotionally charged interactions, you need that support from your technology to make sure that you can actually focus on the conversation that you're having so that you don't take a misstep and hurt your customer brand, just like you were talking
1: about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm here with Emma Roloff from Navient Technologies. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more discussion with her on transformation ground control.
4: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
1: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Emma and we're discussing AI and different types of emerging technologies. So let's jump right back into the conversation. Abala, who's on Crowdcast as well, watching live. He he asked the question, which is a great one: Are the bots that you mentioned before are those capable uh, to do OCR for different languages? So, if you have documents in different languages, can it? Is it multilingual?
7: Um, I mean, it depends on what technology you're looking at. The solutions that Navient has, we have two main intelligent document processing tools that we use, or that intelligent. Um, Uh, OCR, and both of those do support multiple languages to the tune of probably like 20 or 30. I don't know if either one of them can take every and all language, um, but I haven't actually run into a scenario with one of my clients where we haven't been able to process what they're looking at. So it's it's most of the main languages that um, we would run into with our customers because both of our software vendors that we work with are um, international companies. So they're working with people outside the US on a regular basis. Um, the I would say that if, you know, if you're looking at a specific tool, make sure that that's a question that you ask, because there are some that don't have language recognition capabilities across the board. Um, and same with currency recognition. Our tools do support multiple currencies, um, but sometimes that can can throw other tools, depending on what level of intelligence um, or maturity of the tool it is, if they have the capability to do that or not.
1: Right, right. So I want to shift gears a little bit. There's actually more I wanted to cover on the the sort of the technology side, but you and I share so much in common as far as uh, our views of what makes these sorts of transformations successful. So if we kind of step away from specific technologies for a second and just talk Mm -hmm. about transformation in general, whether it's OCR or bots or intelligent automation or ERP, whatever it is, you're, you're doing something to automate your business and improve your business using technology. What do you see as the most important success factors to, to make a transformation successful?
7: Well, so no surprise here, but to me, I think change management is the most important part of a transformation, and the reason that I say that, and I I do not want to minimize the importance of having the right tool and making sure that whatever tool you're bringing into your organization at least can support your requirements. I you know going to a conversation we had earlier today, teaser for everybody, we talked about enterprise versus point solutions. I think that there's something to be said about making strategic decisions with your technology that will allow that technology to grow with your organization over time. So I do not wanna minimize that, but ultimately, even if you have the coolest, newest, best, amazing technology around and you implement it and nobody decides to adopt it, it doesn't do the cool, great, amazing things you paid lots of money for it to do. And um, my colleague, Mark Miller, always says that technology is the easy part and that the people are the hard part. And um, the more I am in this industry, the more I realize that that's true. You can, again, you can do all of the right things, but if you don't have the buy-in of the people that are supposed to be driving it, you're not gonna get anywhere. And so for me, there's kind of like three main things and there sounds really simple when I break it down to three things, but I think that there's like three key principles of change management that have to be there and have to be done well for your project to go well. And the first one starts maybe even before you've chosen the technology and that's you know identifying what the change within your organization is gonna be why you need to make that change and making sure that every person that's involved in the change understands that why. And I don't mean understands the why like from a theoretical level, but understands it well enough to have taken it and internalized it and turned it into their own like what's in it for me statement. Hmm. Going back to what you said at the beginning or the question that you asked at the beginning of, you know like how how do you manage the change of potentially automating large portions of people's position and ultimately if you can get them to understand what's in it for you is you don't have to do the part of your job that you hate most every day we get to take that away and you get to do the parts that are interesting to you or you have less things that you don't like to do all day every day as a part of your position but helping them understand what's in it for them not what's in it for the organization but how it's going to impact their life and make their life better you're going to have an automatic advocate and they are going to have a stake in the success of the project if you can do that correctly. Now, that can be done when you've had a solution chosen and you are are working on getting the buy-in for the, you know, as, as you get going, or it can be done before you've even selected the tool. But that has to be done and there needs to be an understanding through all levels of the organization of why it's happening and why it's valuable to them and that why looks different for everybody. And then once you get to the point where you're actually working on implementing a solution, it can't be a black box that's solving the problems for people. Now, do they need to understand how OCR is working and what the algorithms are in the background? Of course not. Do they need to understand um, what API integrations are happening to pull all of their systems? No, but they do need to understand what that process looks like and how decisions are being made through that process. And um, as you're going through it, making sure that you're being transparent with stubbed toes or hiccups or repivots because you've understood, you know, you identified through your process like, "Ooh, there's actually a way better way that we could be doing this." But there needs to be transparency to that because. How, I mean, I, I guess I can't ask people on, on the call to raise their hand with us, but I would imagine most people have been in a scenario where a change has been um, either just handed to them and they're told like, okay, this is your new process. And I am like the number one person of like logically being like, How, why? why? Why do I have to do this? Because if I don't understand why, then I'm probably not going to. And, um, or there's a lot of organizations that will make a big hubbub on the front end that they're gonna do something and disappear into darkness for a year and a half, and then just never have anything happen and never tell anybody about what's happening because a project died, or it's all of a sudden the timeline has extended substantially. And then everybody that you got excited about the change is suddenly discouraged and doesn't believe in your ability to deliver the solution. And whereas if you were just honest and transparent about what that process looks like, they would be accepting of that and still looking forward to what the value will bring. And then on the back end you can't just bring a solution in and sit it there and and hope that people understand what it's done for the organization you have to clearly communicate what wins you've got what lessons you learned what did that look like how what does this mean for the organization you have to have you know highlight stories of people that got benefit out of the project so that you have momentum behind your total digital transformation. And if you don't take advantage of that, that opportunity to share those stories and scream from the mountaintops about your successes, then again, it's gonna be that much harder when you start over again to explain the why and get the buy-in. And so it can be this really like self-perpetuating thing if you do the change management effectively, suddenly you're gonna have so many ideas and so many projects that you don't have the bandwidth to complete them and you have to put together a roadmap. But if you don't do that the right way, then you don't get to that that stage of your transformation.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great points. And the, you know, the buy-in uh, seems to be a common theme of of what what you're advocating is just getting people involved early on and um, and in understanding. I think you hit another really good point, which is understanding the what's in it for me personally, or at the very least, my team or my part of the organization, not it doesn't always work to have that high level fluffy, you know, we're going to be more efficient as an organization and we're going to provide better customer service. And that's all great, but it's like, what does that mean to me? Like what I'm doing every day? So I think it's a really good point.
7: Well, and when you hear things like we're going to be more efficient as an organization and we're going to do this project, that's when you start to get the fear associated with those types of projects because people will jump to conclusions about what that means for them. If you don't help them get to the, the, crux of what you're looking for now again i hope that most organizations are not just doing these massive automation projects just to you know let go of people because i don't think that that's the right decision and i think most organizations understand that they need their people Um, but that doesn't stop the fear of people thinking that automation is going to take their job and then you look at headlines and there's headlines all over the place about how ai or intelligent automation are going to get rid of x amount of jobs but it leaves out the part of the equation of how many jobs can be put in place to help support these technologies, and or how many jobs will just change and not disappear, but look different. Um, and that's that's another one that I could could go on for for a long time yeah. about. But I, you know, when you look at the the last industrial revolution that we had. How many more jobs were created by advancements in technology than were eliminated by people no longer being able to do what they were doing? And um, as technology advances, your role looks different. You, you may potentially have to learn new things, but there's still plenty of opportunity for humans to, to be involved in our work and find work that they're passionate about and, and continue to do new and exciting things um, with this technology.
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember when I was a kid in the 80s. And you remember the 80s, right? Of course.
7: Still wasn't alive. <laughs>
1: right. But I, Sorry, I had to throw that in there. I, I, I to... We can say
7: 90s, right? Because I was there <laughs> for
1: that. <laughs> no, my, my parents worked uh, at a digital equipment corporation when, in the 80s when I was growing up. And um, so they were in technology or they worked for t- a technology company. But um, I still remember even back then, like, there was all this fear of like computers taking over the world and getting rid of jobs. And that was the same time when uh, a lot of Japanese auto companies were, were moving into the U S and automating a lot of factories and things like that. So there's this whole, I remember this underlying fear, even as a kid, you kind of sensed it like this fear of like, Oh gosh, robots are going to come in and just take over our jobs. So this isn't really anything new or that fear is nothing new. I think that there's always going to be that underlying fear um, is, especially as technology gets more and more advanced like that.
7: Well, and the irony of that specific situation is there is a pretty significant shortage of techs that can fix the types of equipment and actual like physical robotics that are in car manufacturing and heavy manufacturing because something like that goes down, you have to have technical training and you have to understand how to fix that, but there's a shortage of people that can fix that. And, you know, so had had we been a little bit more forward thinking and spent time encouraging people to go into those positions instead of always just pushing in a different direction of like like heavy academic work there'd still be lots of opportunity for people to go into the manufacturing space to be a highly specialized technician in those scenarios and so it, the, there there's some irony to me that they you know the people that fix the robots that potentially took those jobs are now in a shortage because we didn't spend the time right. learning those skills so i think that you know you do have to you have to be prepared to learn new skills and figure out now that doesn't always mean being a developer that doesn't always, you know, there, there's lots of people that feel like they have to figure out how to be a, whether it's code developer, or citizen developer, doing configuration. I'm an example of somebody that did not come from a technical background, did not come from, and I, and I have a career in technology now because I took the time to learn some new skills and, and, and build that competency. Now, do I understand everything to do with technology? No, but I have a career that's based in it. And there's a lot of opportunity to take soft skills and other things and repurpose them to get more involved in what the the future of work looks like.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's well said. And I think that's why a lot of skilled labor positions are in such high demand, too. You know, mm-hmm. in, in addition to fixing robots or whatever the case may be, there's just a lot of skilled labor shortages throughout the uh, throughout the world right now. And I think a lot of that is because of the way just the economy is shifting and it's just it's just changing the nature of work and changing the types of jobs that we need. Just as we unpack the 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 micro example of the AP clerk and how they're, or the customer service rep whose job is is just evolving. It's still, it. on one hand, you could say that, that person's job might go away, but what we're saying and what, what I've heard you say is it's not necessarily going away, it's just changing. It's changing the focus and the purpose of the job. So I think that's a, a really key point.
5: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
1: back to transformation ground control episode number 45 my name is eric kimberling here with Cheatham, and you can find new episodes every wednesday on youtube linkedin all the audio podcast platforms so be sure to check us out there uh, we just had this discussion or we played a, a clip of our interview with emma roloff which by the way if you like that interview with emma um, that is from episode number 27 of this podcast which was over the summer um, that was one of the summer interviews we did so I uh, check out episode number 27 that that interview I think was over an hour so it was a pretty lengthy discussion we had or is right around at one hour mark so there's a lot we didn't cover in this clip in our best of episode we're talking about here today, uh, but in the clip we did play what were some of your uh, takeaways as it relates to to Emma's points about the human aspect of, of emerging technologies.
2: Absolutely, I think her overall take on the transparency and the communication strategy and plan behind a digital transfer- transformation or a new technology within an organization is so critical. Specifically when she referenced the fact that um, say the industrial revolution, that, that actually added a lot of jobs to our overall workforce when we were going through that as you know a global culture. And so is emerging technologies or we're talking about AI, machine learning, automation, those types of things. They they do actually add jobs in that the technicians need to actually fix those robotics. So when you are communicating that change, I think it's so important that you include that piece or that opportunity messaging within your organization. Um, And I'd be curious to see if you agree with that. Like maybe if you could buck the trend of fear-based reactions by saying, hey, this is actually the opportunity that we have to create other job functions as well as make yours and yours more efficient.
1: Yeah, I'd a, that's a great point. And it, it is true. Um, but I think there's a caveat to that, which is that it's not always, uh, it's still not always relatable to the average employee. So for example, if I'm a if I'm a shop floor worker, let's just say I, I'm working on the front lines and uh, say I'm a shift supervisor or whatever and you're telling me that a lot of my job is going to be automated now with um, you know robotics and artificial intelligence and it's going to create more jobs for you know technicians to fix the robots or data scientists to handle the data size of what's being captured on the shop floor, um, you could argue that sure it's, it's automating the shop floor uh, stuff that's being done and maybe it's eliminating tasks or functions on the shop floor but it's creating opportunity mm-hmm. the problem here is that it's creating opportunities somewhere else it's creating yeah. opportunities for data scientists or someone to fix the robots or whatever and it may or may not be that you can repurpose people to to take on those roles so for example you can't just say to a shop floor uh, supervisor that well the good news is you could just become a data scientist because those are two totally different skill sets and that's going to take years to to make that transition if you're a, a shop floor uh, person so you know sometimes it what someone does and how they prioritize their time. But I think the key is you want it. You have to define that future state vision of what the organization is going to look like. You know, if that person's job is going to say, you know, 30% of their job is going to go away or become automated. What are you going to do with that 30%? Are you going to repurpose it for something else? Are you going to um, give them more responsibility in different areas? Are you going to train them to do something different? And you have to have that vision or path, because if you don't, the person you know, people are pretty smart. They know that, okay, I'm not just gonna become a data scientist overnight because you're telling me you're creating more data scientist jobs and, and taking away my job. I'm smart enough to know that's not gonna be me that's taking that data scientist role. So I'm still gonna resist the change. I'm still afraid, even though the net effect might be for not eliminating any jobs. Um, so I think that's the, way, that's the key is to really understand how to connect the dots between current state organization and skills and competencies, and then future state organizational design and skills and competencies.
2: Yeah. That's an excellent point. Um, I never thought about it that way. So would that be where kind of that integration piece comes in when it comes to involving that front lines level on new business processes and kind of empowering that ownership? Is that, is that where that would come into play that, that Emma referenced?
1: It would. Yeah. Yeah. You would definitely want to uh, involve people in the definition of the future state processes. And usually, um, usually with most clients we work with, there's enough work that's not getting done
3: mm-hmm.
1: or not getting done well, because they're trying to do so much other stuff that's right. inefficient or manual or whatever. They, in most cases, you're not, you know, we don't have many clients that we run into over the years that are, they're just going to eliminate jobs as a result of automation. Usually it's just, it, you know, it's, it's changing the way jobs look um, or it's, you know, we're going to keep growing, but we don't have to hire as many people because we're so efficient as a result of the automation. That's sort of the, the baseline worst case scenario in most cases is we're just not going to hire as many people in the future. But it's pretty rare, honestly, that we see organizations that are just going to cut people as a result. So if that's the reality, you know, we should be clear about that reality mm-hmm. to our people and make sure they understand we're not cutting jobs. Yes, your job is going to change, but we want you to be part of that solution. You know, to your point, you you want them to be involved in helping define. You know, what would you do if you didn't have to do uh, manual spreadsheets or dual you know reentry of data or whatever. If you weren't spending X amount of time doing that, you know, what could you be doing more of? And oftentimes the employees know what they could or would rather be doing. They know what could be adding more value to the organization. They just don't have time to do it because they don't have the tools, they've been trained, or they have other priorities that maybe, you know, can get reprioritized as a result of automation. So that you just have to be able to articulate that again, back to what we were talking about in the opening segment, about having that clear vision of what that future state organization is going to be.
2: Yeah, and it it sounds like based on what Emma said that that could be where the what's in it for me or the why comes in to the piece. Um, you know, I I really empathize and and can understand how she referenced like there's always that disruptor within a corporate structure that's always like, excuse me, why are we doing this? And that was always me when I I worked mm-hmm. in a corporate environment. And it, it it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in that part of that redefining of processes and transparently communicating that to whatever level of the organization you're talking to, that might be, hey, this is why we're doing this, so that you can be more efficient and that you can have all of these additional opportunities within your day-to-day job. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that is true. If you can define the why we're doing this, what it means, how it impacts you, uh, what that future state is going to be. and, and make employees part of that you don't you don't necessarily need to involve every single employee obviously in those discussions and decisions but if you have key stakeholders or influencers within the organization within different departments and locations and um, geographies or whatever uh, if you have a good representation and helping to find those future state processes and organizational responsibilities in the future uh, then that's going to be a lot more effective so yeah you absolutely it starts with the why but then you have to get into the what and the how and some of the details behind it as well.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's where um, Jeff's segment fits so well in this is how do emotionally intelligent leaders of the organization make sure they are thinking through and activating all of these really important tactics. So I think it's a great time to kind of bring him in to talk about that emotional intelligence piece.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It it almost feels like we're sort of working our way up the uh, Maslow's hierarchy of organizational change needs here we sort of started with the basics with Teresa and we've worked our way up to a little bit more specific to how you know human adoption works with emerging Mm -hmm. technologies now we're working up to a higher level now which is just emotional intelligence and the psychology Mm -hmm. of change in general uh, which is super fascinating and and, um, the reason I enjoy I enjoyed the conversation with Jed is because he's not a he's not a digital transformation guy he's not a technology guy he is purely an emotional Mm -hmm. intelligence expert and an organizational psychology expert So he just has a different perspective on change and he's not thinking about it, you know, in terms of how we can implement a new system or whatever he's thinking about, just change and leadership in general. So it's a really good discussion we had with him. Um, And that was back from episode number 33. We're going to play you a a clip from that interview, uh, some of the high points of the interview uh, here in just a moment. We'll take a quick break first and we'll be back with more on Transformation Ground Control.
6: Contact 3rd Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
1: Why do you think it is that um, leaders so commonly struggle with or uh, with emotional intelligence, or, or organizations in general, organizations and their leaders. Why? Why is emotional intelligence such a a problem or a deficiency for for a lot of people and organizations?
0: I was thinking about that. It seems like people end up in leadership positions for different reasons, but one big reason is usually they're a strong personality and. I've watched people with strong personalities, the, the, the farther they go, it seems like sometimes the less resistance they get because people realize, oh, strong personality, resistance is futile. So we'll just go along. And the more time, the more experience you have of not having anybody, you know, question or challenge an idea, it becomes your expectation. It becomes everybody's expectation around you. And pretty soon, uh, you, you can be a tyrant if you're not careful so i think humility again the self-awareness and the humility and the and the actually not fragile ego these are all good traits of, of a good leader whereas we've seen uh we've seen instances where a, a leader who just is so afraid of anybody questioning them or so afraid of being wrong or looking stupid which to me that really comes from a lack of humility uh that's where leaders tend to get in trouble. So if we really wanted to simplify it, uh, back to love and logic terms, maybe some of our leaders didn't struggle enough or get challenged enough or have enough uh, times where they were wrong or made mistakes or had to own those. And so they're just not good at it because they don't have enough practice. So a great thing for a leader is to have another strong personality who is not afraid uh, to say, well, here's at least another way of looking at that. And obviously it has to be a healthy, intentional communication where it doesn't become toxic uh disagreement or or disagreement just for the sake of which is another thing that is a lot uh it, it's plentiful on the internet <laughs> i'll nice. just be the naysayer just because but i think for the for the leader yeah that self-awareness to say i don't want to become um uh this this voice that nobody can oppose because once in a while at least i'm going to be wrong yeah yeah very very true and
1: good point um we we actually have a a question that i wanted to get to a question from the audience um this is from uh ahmed on um youtube and by the way if you're on linkedin um on the live stream i'm having trouble getting into the live stream so i'm not even sure if it's if if the live the stream is working on linkedin but i know it is on youtube and, and Ahmed is uh, has a question, which I think is a great one, which is, uh, first of all, good session. Thank you. I appreciate if you can shed uh, shed some light on micromanagement and its effect on corporate organizations. What are your thoughts on
0: that? Love that question. Sadly, close to too close. I really believe the micromanager. It comes from a place of fear. I think a lot of times my propensity to micromanage is because I'm afraid. And I can't just trust that things are going to be okay, or that our plan is good, or that my people are capable. So usually, a micromanager is a, is a leader who's coming from a place of fear. And if I work with a company, that's that's one of the things I'm going to try to do is, is break down and say, what are we really afraid of? Uh, what are and, and sometimes it's okay to go to the worst-case scenario. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen here? Uh, and a lot of times, what we're afraid of isn't nearly as bad as you know the fear itself, or or what we're worried is going to happen. But yeah, my short answer is I think my micromanagement tends to come from fear, and I think the antidote to that. This may sound a little crazy, but I think the antidote to fear a lot of times is relationship. When I really trust you. And if you think about this in a marriage or with a best friend, when I really know you and I really trust you, that relationship tends to kind of erode the fear. A lot of times when we're afraid, it's more the unknown, uh, the unfamiliar, the thing we don't know uh, what to expect. So the longer we can go. And if we build this positive relationship, I think that helps alleviate some of that fear. Now, if I have a leader who's just their base personality is, is to overly uh, worry, you know, that means this, there's some self-awareness work that that leader needs to do. So if it's, if it's me doing it, they, to do self-awareness, if it's coming from somewhere else, Let's really, I would with a company I'd really build, I'd actually work on building, um, a a stronger and more positive relationship between the, the parties involved. Cause then when I trust you, I don't, I don't have to micromanage you. I know it's you, Eric, you're going to do a great job. I don't need to micromanage you because we have a relationship and I know. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I I guess it's almost like,
1: um, you know, in the apps, the relationship, it seems like the relationship creates, um, knowledge in some ways it's a comfort it's knowledge it's a understanding and in the absence of that knowledge and understanding and comfort i guess i'm in in some cases i might assume the worst it, depending on what my personality is or you know my general level of trust i might assume the worst and therefore i'm gonna micromanage because i'm assuming the worst i don't have the information i don't have the trust i don't have the confidence is that sort is that sort of what you're saying it, it,
0: it kind of feeds into it that's it oh uh, i'm sort of sad that you said it better than i did but yeah that's it exactly <laughs> Uh, if I think about talking. a dark a dark street, if if I see a stranger on the dark street, I'm, <laughs> I, I might be a little more inherently afraid of a stranger. But if I see the person, oh, that's my friend, you know, the fear is going to go away. I know this person. I, I think that happens a lot in business when when we have a relationship. It helps us just be less afraid. Um, almost by definition, there's going to be some trust in that relationship that that hopefully makes me less worried that I need to micromanage this other person. Right. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. Um, So if I have a boss, if I have a boss who's a micromanager, I'm actually saying become better, become closer and better friends with that boss. Who's the micromanager, which is probably counterintuitive. That's great advice.
1: You know, I've never thought of that. You know, I've had micromanager bosses, you know, back in the day before, before I was the boss, but, um i never thought that never even occurred to me that 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 could be a good antidote antidote to that so that's great advice what about um emotional intelligence or not emotional intelligence um we already talked about that <laughs> organizational culture um when you you think about organizational culture which i know culture in general is an area that that uh, you're keen on and, and you know well but how would you describe it um how does it affect how can it affect uh, or positively affect an organization? And uh, how can it affect positive change? So maybe just start with culture in general. Why is it important? How does it affect an organization?
0: Yeah, I'm kind of a sports guy. And so I think about about sports teams and we can be kind of the sum of the ability of, of the different people on the team. And so I wanna hire, if I'm hiring, I wanna hire as many Emotionally intelligent people as possible. Uh, we can train some things into people, but if if someone's kind of base personality is is very selfish and uh, you know not not caring very much about other people, that's that's a tough thing to overcome. I'd actually rather have a kind of a giver personality who knows less because I can train them in you know whatever the logistics might be but that person who's really, really just inherently selfish, that's a hard thing to overcome. Uh, when it comes to the culture, what I look for is I'll go back to this growth mindset. Uh, It's probably a book that you've recommended, uh, the the book mindset, Carol Dweck, we're big fans. Mm. I want people on the team that have this growth mindset. I think one of the more toxic things, to an organizational culture is the people who are stuck in the old way. And that's just the way it is. And I think they almost become comfortable, uh, complaining. I see this in professions. Again, I'm working with a lot of teachers and many of them wonderful. There's a certain segment of teachers that are kind of happy martyrs. in a, in a sense that our job is so tough and our job is so bad. I see this now, uh, as a thing to to battle against in the culture of a, a law enforcement agency. We have this really tough job and nobody understands how how hard it is. And I want to have empathy for that position. Yes, it really is hard and still a growth mindset. Let's not sit here helpless and say this is so tough and there's nothing we can do about it. I worked with teenagers in trouble for a long time before I worked for Love and Logic. And there was a certain segment of our staff that would want to go to the bar afterwards and talk about how bad the kids were. And those were not my people. Uh, My people were the ones who wanted to share the amazing success stories because I feel like, like hope and optimism, especially working with people who have been through a lot of tough stuff. Those are, are almost magic bullets. Versus that sort of pessimistic "woe is us," uh, it's never going to get any better. That, to me, is is really the the anchor, bringing down a lot of organizational culture. So yeah, give me the optimistic person, give me the growth minded person, and um, I mean, once in a while, there are people who are just not a good fit for my organization. And I think I think the selfish pessimist is the person. I really would like to cut from the team, uh, before the regular season starts. Right now, that's a
1: great, uh, great point in a couple of great points there. One is the hope and optimism and how that's gonna, that's gonna win in the end. And that's, that, that can be very powerful. I think, uh, if we let it, I guess is sort of the caveat. If you, if you let hope and optimism be there, it, it's gonna win. The problem is a lot of times we don't let it in. We focus on the negative, we, we kind of drag ourselves down and, you know, there's nothing else there to. Ooh, yes, back up.
4: Download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
1: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 45, the best of the people Components of our podcast this year so far, sort of looking back at the year 2021 and some of the high points of that uh, pot of this podcast, um, particularly on the people and the organizational change management side of things. So we just had the interview or a clip of the interview with Jed Hafer, um, and that was back from episode number 33. So if you like that discussion and you want to hear more about what Jed and I had to talk about there, go back to episode number 33 of this podcast. You can listen to the whole, you know, one-hour interview, however long it was. Um, where we get into a lot of different stuff is really, really good conversation. That was one of my favorite ones from from this year for sure. But what were some of your takeaways or thoughts on that uh, discussion, Kyler?
2: Yeah, um, you know he he does such a good job about uh, really breaking down how important emotional intelligence is for specifically for leadership. So you know, really in that tier, thinking through change management. And he also kind of points out that that's really not often a quality of a leader. Um, A lot of times, specifically within corporate structures, as we heard um, from Ahmad that asked the question about micromanaging in leadership, it Mm -hmm. often is kind of the biggest personality or the loudest person in the room that kind of gets to that bigger leadership tier. And I'm curious how How you deal with that as a consultant, because most of the time you're working with that executive tier a lot of times or a project sponsor that might not think through all of the organizational intelligence needed to have a successful digital transformation. So I I wonder what your reaction or experience to that was.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good reminder that, first of all, it's, it's a reminder of a couple of things. One is that change and effective change leadership starts at the top. I mean, it has to start at the executive level. Not to say that if you're a consultant or a project team member or a lower level person within the organization, you can't influence those executives, but they, they ultimately have to be bought in. And sometimes what organizations forget or they don't do or they're afraid to do is they're afraid to coach up, you know, coach up yeah. to the executive level and say, hey, here's here's what we need from you, CEO, CFO, COO, whoever. Um, and this is the sort of message we need you to convey. And making sure they're on board with that um, messaging and take ownership of that. And you could do a lot of the leg or the leg work and heavy lifting behind the scenes to create the messaging and make it easy for them. Um, the ghost writing of emails or, or putting the other messaging that they might uh, communicate to the organization and that that's okay. Um, but you ultimately, you need the face of the change to come from the top. And that's where a lot of organizations, they, they skip that step and they just jump into you know the, the mode of, well, I'm a change management, team member, I'm just going to go start doing stuff to help affect change. And you really can't do it yourself or as a, as a change team, if you don't have that, that executive support. So you, it really starts there. I think that's the number one priority for for a lot of teams or should be the number one priority is to make sure your executives are on board and that, that you have the right stakeholders. You know, one thing that's maybe never occurred to me or I've never articulated it fully is that it feels like sometimes change management ends up becoming like a, uh, a reactive way to address a problem Mm -hmm. you know rather than getting to the root cause of the problem it ends up being sort of like we're going to address the symptoms which are people are resisting change so we're going to go fight that resistance to change versus well why are they resisting the change maybe it's because executives haven't defined the, the vision or they haven't defined the future state well enough and maybe we should start there and get to the root cause then we don't have to spend so much time reactively trying to address change or mitigate the their risk of, of the change resistance that we're seeing. So um, so I think, you, you know, it's important to really look at the root causes of, of change resistance to begin with.
2: Yeah. And it sounds like Jed was really saying a lot of times that root cause is trust, whether it's trust with your organization, mm-hmm. that they're going to be honest with you about how your job is changing, or just overall trust with your, um, your, your direct supervisor, that they're still going to kind of trickle down the messaging. I love his example of if you have a boss that really micromanages manages you, you need to try and be their friend more, which seems so counterproductive, right? <laughs> In that you'd want to be mm-hmm. their friend. Um, but developing that trust is really kind of the catalyst, it sounds like, for people mitigating the risk of fear. Would you say that's kind of the case that you got from that conversation with him too?
1: yeah i did um that was a takeaway and i think that you know it, it maybe it's i don't know friend is the, the the right word for everyone or maybe it's just a deeper level of understanding um asking questions you know if you've got a boss that's micromanaged runs counter to the direction you're trying to head as an organization so you just have to understand why something happens along the way that might cause us to be perceived otherwise so what, what's driving that? Usually there's some there's a good reason for why people act the way they do, mm-hmm. whether it's good or bad. And so just try, really trying to understand that and saying, you know, if someone's micromanaging, as, using that example, you know, why are you, you know, what, what is it you're trying to accomplish as a leader? You know, what are yeah. your priorities and what are your greatest fears or, you know, just understanding that person. Usually you'll get to the answer, oh, that makes sense now why you would micromanage, given that these are your concerns or your hot buttons or whatever. And that's the, you know, that's a key part of change management. that's sort of that it's sort of the art and the finesse of change management that, that's hard to quantify. It's hard to put it in a methodology or a change management framework per se, uh, but it is something that, that's very important to, to change to be successful.
2: Yeah, and as someone that manages and established a completely remote workforce, how do you create those meaningful relationships in more of our digital communication methodology that we have now after specifically the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: I don't know if I think we've talked about it on the podcast before perhaps in passing but I, I tend to be a believer that it's not healthy to be 100% remote. I don't think it's mm-hmm. nearly as effective. There I think we've learned during the pandemic there are a lot of things we could be doing remote. Maybe it's more efficient to be doing remote, but you you just absolutely miss so many key uh human interactions especially when you're talking about change management and leading people through change. You can do some of that over Zoom, but at some point, you know, we have to we have to meet right. in person, you know, I I don't, care. I don't care what the technologist would say, or the, you know, there's a lot of people in our industry space, that just love the whole work from home concept and yeah. think it's, you know, we should go 100% remote. I'm, I don't buy into that at all. I think you miss, and there's studies that show that you miss yeah. a lot of um, nuances in nonverbal communication. You just don't get over Zoom. It's certainly better, video is better than just audio, but you mm-hmm. still, when you meet someone in person, it's just totally different. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but during the pandemic, when we hired new team members, it it was really weird for me to hire someone I'd never met in person. And so when I finally meet him in person, I, there's been several of them now where I feel like, Oh, I feel like I know you so much better now because yeah, we've talked for hours and hours and days at a time over zoom, but meeting you in person for half an hour, I just feel like I know you so much better. And, um, there is something there and there's studies that show that, that you don't, you know, you don't know someone, you don't pick up a lot of cues over, over video. So, um, I don't know if that really answers your question uh, or I didn't go the direction maybe you're, you're asking there, but I, I think it's key to have both, you know, the, both the in-person yeah. and remote. Uh, but when you do have the remote or when you're, you know, you're at a point organizationally or wherever in the world you may be listening from today, you may have no choice but to be working remote in some cases, or some of your team may have no choice but to be remote. So you have to figure out that's the reality of what we have to deal with. So how are we going to make more meaningful time to have those connections? And how do we find ways to have, uh more meaningful discussions and more planned discussions over, over uh, video or whatever. And, and I think the key here is that, you know, one of the things that people have done, I think, in, in today's day and age of remote work is they just back up meeting after meeting after meeting and mm-hmm. you miss out on sort of the water cooler talk right. and the, the informal side conversations and things that you, you pick up on things that you, that you wouldn't normally get when you have a set agenda over Zoom And you've, you've got five minutes until you got to get to the next meeting on Zoom. You're you're just not going to pick up on that stuff. You're going to miss a lot. So I think you just have to find ways to have more slack in your schedule, have more informal conversations, have more side conversations and things of that nature, even if it means you have to do it uh, digitally. So uh,
2: that's, that's the way I view it. Yeah. And I, I think that just appreciating, as you said, the human component, you know, as human beings. From a psychological perspective, we we were never meant to be completely alone, right? You know, so having that ability to really discover what motivates your colleagues and your community, for example, um, when I was in client services for a long time, my clients would always take my calls because I always remembered their kids' names. You know, I made their human aspect of their lives important, and I think that creates that stronger trust, that stronger relationship. Um that Jed was referencing. so a great a great way to kind of end the segment to just remind everyone that we're all human beings as well as technology professionals, but really humans first. And that's so important to consider when going through any big change within a big business strategy or organization.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. That's a good a good place to leave it. I mean I think that's uh you know, this human piece that we've talked about today or some of the highlights we've, we've highlighted from previous uh, podcast interviews is a, is a good uh, good wrap-up to this, to this whole discussion here. And um, we are going to have a, a follow-up, two follow-ups actually to this podcast in our best of series, the best of 2021. Uh, we're going to have in our next week's episode, we're going to cover the process piece of transformation. So covering people, process technology. Today, we covered people. Episode number 46 next week, we'll cover the process side of change and some of the highlights and the best podcast interviews we've had this year related to process. And then we'll get into episode number 47, two weeks from today, where we get into the technology side. So we'll have uh, some of the best of highlights from discussions related to technology. So we're trying to give you that 360 degree focus, best of you uh, of 2021, in case you missed any of these uh, podcasts. But again, if you like the interviews you heard today, I encourage you to go check out the full episodes. Um, Again, if you like Teresa Richardson and her discussion of the intro to change management, that was episode 29. Emma Roloff, where we talked about human aspects or human adoption with new technology, that was episode 27. And then Jed Hafer, talking about emotional intelligence, was episode number 33. So uh, be sure to check out those full episodes, the full interviews. You get a lot of context there that we we didn't get to today, but hopefully this is giving you a good flyover view uh, as it relates to change management and the human side of change. So thanks very much for joining today. I hope you you found this uh, episode helpful. Be sure to subscribe. Check us out every Wednesday with new episodes on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast platforms. Be sure to follow us on social media. Uh, Thank you again, Kyler, for putting together this show with us. Hope you all have a great week, and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control.